You can do that wrong. Forty-two was the only English word I knew. Have you ever seen these sketches from the Americas? No, I I, I try my best to avoid them. <laughs> yeah. It it, it 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 was funny joke like the first five hundred times, <laughs> and after that it just began repeating itself. I know, right? But I just had to get that out of out of my system. I I I can see that you are back. Covering Terminator films. Back with a vengeance, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Karri, studied media. Here's Henrik, studies art and media. Welcome to the podcast, which covers and mainly covers international films, but we do put in the effort to have something else for us who are not interested in 1930s Martinique, even though it was a Fantastic film. Yeah, yeah, because uh, uh, American and uh, because American Hollywood productions are not international cinema. No, no. <laughs> no I mean, no. Th- th- the states have kind of lost their the sense of international because, <laughs> well, from their their perspective, it's the U.S. and then it's the international, the rest of the world. So, so yeah. in that sense. Well, yeah, well, that they have, and and Hollywood has kind of lost their. Definition of cinema. Henrik, when have you first seen The Terminator? I saw this actually relatively late in, in, in my film buff career. It's... Mm. I, I would have been something like... I can't even remember when, when I finally saw this. I've been a, a, as, as old as something like 16 or 15 mm. when I finally first time got, got the original Terminator. Because I... Like I, I would believe, like most of us, I also first saw the uh, saw, saw the sequel, Judgment Day, and after that, finally managed to actually see the first one. Because for some some odd reason, most likely because Judgment Day was the blockbuster, and this is much more small budget, nearing an indie feature kind of effort. The judge, the sequel is the one that. It gets much heavier push behind it, and is much more heavily distributed and talked about. And altogether, even as a film, is more iconic of the two. Yeah, I also have no idea when I first watched the original Terminator, but must have been somewhere in the nineties because there is no alternative option. And like you, I think I have seen the Terminator Two before the original Terminator. For whatever reason, I remember watching The Terminator 2 on Nelonen Channel back in the day in 97 and probably saw bits and pieces before that. But when it comes to the original, I still... I have no idea. No idea. Yeah, because this really didn't get that much coverage, especially in Finland, as a film. I'm not even sure it has, has the original 
ever even be broadcasted in in Finnish TV network at all because they, because <laughs> T2 gets rerun kind of constantly but but this is kind of the the obscure film that everybody this is kind of the this is the mad max scenario once again where everybody knows the fucking sequel road warrior but only a handful of people has actually seen the first one and when it comes to the releases the sequel gets this multi dvd disc collectors edition hyper hyper version and this gets a dvd and a Blu-ray release. Which does look delicious, Henrik. I was able to obtain the Blu-ray, and it really does some great service for the film, which I have always always used to watch it from very shadowy uh, VHS tapes with low quality, uh, well, which well, is kind, yeah. of the, kind of the <clears throat> what you can expect from a VHS. Uh, well, <coughs> speaking, since you mentioned VHS... It comes to, like like it said in the professional circles when it comes to the Blu-ray release of Terminator, looks delicious, sounds like shit. Really? I didn't yeah. get that feeling at all. I well, actually... I, actually, re- actually that, that is simply because you have never actually seen the VHS version. <laughs> the, the, the film that you are trying to reference here, in reality it was just so that you took the Blu-ray risk and shoved it in the, the empty casing of a VHS. And then just played the Blu-ray. Because okay. the sound quality actually, like, even though the sound quality in itself is technically, it is more clear in, in the Blu-ray version. But they did change the, the, the audio. Like, it, it was recorded in mono mix and in the Blu-ray mm-hmm. and in DVDs. It's Adobe Digital. And something that actually happens because of this is that even though it, it is like like i said it is clearer so in that technical sense it's it's better but it threatens the entire audio plan the film was shot on mono and the whole whole audio was designed to be recorded as mono so because of that, the Dolby Digital that you get with the Blu-ray, it is much more flattened. And there is certain elements in the audio that are way more lackluster in the Dolby Digital audio work. This is most noticeable in the gunshot sounds, which in Dolby Digital have this pew-pew-pew effect in them. And it sounds absolutely fucking horrendous. Okay, but I don't think they changed the sound effects for the guns, though. No, 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 no. They just... They, they didn't change the sound effects. They, they simply took, you know, mono recording yeah. and simply transferred that into Dolby Di- Digital. And yeah. yeah, and something was lost in that translation. Because they also didn't enhance the cer- certain audio elements in the audio recording by hand when they were were doing this transformation or that's actually or that's the reason what i i do suspect that came into play here well at least they didn't change the sound effects like happened with some of the earlier bond releases on blu-ray where you have and suddenly it's so that i'm against and i would still say that the dolby digital is better because Oh, it's not. Yes. Get, yes. get that yeah. noise out of this fucking podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not hearing another statement of this nonsense. You have to. 
They, because they, this, this, is, this is supposed to be an ultra-violent action movie with guns. Oh, and the okay, gun my, sound effects sound like shit. Like well, really, apart from... Really, the pew-pew-pew is really actually distracting once you hear and remember the mono-recording. Mono okay, well, apart from the uh, sound of the weapons, at least they have taken like the original master files of the music, so that sounds more surroundy and much, much better and clearer. And the mono is like reworked and unfortunately it comes with some of those you know surroundish type of experimentations on the weapons and something and like you said the rest can then sound more flat because that's what it is and sometimes in these releases it is kind of distracting actually because this, uh, <laughs> the music for example can sound the best out of the entire film runtime and, and most surroundish while the actual dialogue is then what it is but at least they have used the best possible sources for the material that they have on Dolby Digital, but they messed up with the sound of the guns. All right, I'm willing to give that one. Which is kind of a problem in, in this film, because guns are something that are used quite a lot. Yes. This film is directed by James Cameron, this indie, not-so-well-known director, directed also the sequel Terminator 2. Yeah, and, and, and has recently made a bunch of films, unfortunately. And will be making some more films. Unfortunately, may, may I emphasize? Like Avatar, 3, yeah, 4, 5, 6, uh, yeah, 7. Yeah, like, like 70 sequels to Avatar, which already was a pretty abysmal and bad movie to begin and, with. And is going to make, or is already talking about, a new trilogy for the Terminator. Yeah, he is now trying to make make a comeback into into the franchise by shoving bunch of money at at the latest one, the Dark Heresy. Whatever happened to the creative James Cameron? I, I guess the same thing that happened to Ridley Scott, who also has gone completely bonkers on his later days. That is true. I guess they get a little bit. A little easier. Of course, that is still to be seen in the case of Cameron. Maybe Avatar 6 will be the greatest film in the universe. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know about lazy. Because, because on the idea side, like when it comes to raw ideas, I, I would say James Cameron and Ridley Scott both have been equally ambitious. But the problem more is that the end product or the result of those grand ideas is better not to be discussed about. In that case, it's better to discuss Arnold Schwarzenegger. Great guy. Built muscles. <laughs> Used muscles to build career. Yeah, actor, politician, ex-bodybuilder. One of the best bodybuilders of all time, or so they consider... Everybody knows him from Conan the Barbarian, except the people who are more of the millennial type, whatever that actually means. Also starting Commando Predator, True Lies Total Recall. Terminator, Terminator yeah, 3. And, and Eraser, and Sixth Day, and Junior, and Things, and Jingle All the Way, and Collateral Damage. All the classics. All the fucking classics, once again. Jesus Christ, I don't know. <clears throat> Would it be Linda Hamilton? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Why did you go and and you know na name the latest films from Linda Hamilton? <laughs> that that should be an easy one. 
Okay. The, the six year hiatus, or how, how long has she been off the spotlight? Curvature, 2017. Sunday Horse, 2016. Yes, yeah. She legendary became disenfranchised with Hollywood, and well, she had already transitioned into TV series before this time period, but eventually moved out of her mansion. And did she go as far as Louisiana, if I remember correctly? However, these days, most kind of has made it her business to stay off the radar and do these smaller parts here and there, appearing quickly on this TV show and that TV show, kind of making making a few episodes in and and taking the paycheck. And otherwise trying to shed that that Hollywood actress image of hers. Yeah, and because she was just out of the fame of Children of the Corn, he was cast into this film. Yep. All the classics. More notable moments from her life. During shooting of T2, she suffered permanent hearing damage in the elevator. Just had to bring it back here. Yeah, now, now, now he's trying to stay all under the radar by appearing in the latest Terminator film, The Dark Tomorrow. Well, if it's a shit show, then hopefully it will stay under the radar. And if it's the greatest Terminator ever made, then all the best for her. And and seeing how it is, once again, a new Terminator film, how could it be a shit show? <laughs> but it's produced by Cameron. Jim. Well, 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 fuck off. But, 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 but it's directed by Tim Miller, fresh from the fame of Deadpool. Who, who is, who is a capable director? I, I give him that much. I, at least judging by Deadpool. But, you know, I, I would make the case that e- even you didn't like Deadpool so much that you are now enthusiastic about Dark Legacy. Or Dark Fate, however these dark shits go. Dark whatever. (laughs) Even though I consider Deadpool one of the better superhero films of late, it didn't really make me think of Terminator automatically, but clearly the guy can, under the multi-million billion dollar machinery, do a film of that scale. Most likely, yeah, because he's able to come up with a rather good product with a li- under a limited budget. So I, I, I would say when, when it comes to the skills, Miller has those. But and if you didn't guess it just yet, we're doing Terminator 1 now to celebrate the upcoming Terminator. Is it now 7? I forgot. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I At this point, I'm kind of a hesitant, hesitant if, if the film itself knows how like what entry it is in the franchise but 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 Henrik we have Edward Furlong he's back in the film to do a small cameo as I as a a what this is gonna be an interesting episode to edit okay (laughs) then we have Michael Bean also known from Aliens as it turns out yeah James Cameron regular here Done quite a lot of work with with James and then also a bunch of other stuff. 
because <laughs> my, my, Michael Bean's career somehow after the James Cameron days, Bean's career kind of faded. Because I'm actually somewhat surprised precisely how much of a non-existent he has become in his later days. Even though now he is trying to do kind of a comeback, but I I would say the Terminator days or or the James Cameron days are kind of up behind him. For well, good. then we have Lance Henriksen, thank God, playing Detective Hal Vukovic. I mean Terminator, or is it Detective or whatever it is. Best known for his ripped ear in Alien 3 ending. Be- best known for that pop culture product that you have consumed. <laughs> Because Lance Henriksen is the guy who you have seen most definitely in somewhere, because the dude has been in basically in everything. If you have seen a movie, Lance Henriksen was there. Or if you haven't seen any movies, you have seen a TV series, and Lance Henriksen was there. And if you have avoided both movies and TV series, then you played Mass Effect, and Lance Henriksen was there. That's an over-explosion of Lance Henriksen, so... The, the dude, dude has like 250 actors credits on, under his belt. How old is he again? 250? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I would say 2,700 already. Then we have Earl Bowen reprising, well, not really, but, um, you know, these timelines don't make any sense in Terminator or in this podcast, so... They, they, they are also don't make any sense outside of the franchise. <laughs> Earl Bowen plays uh, Dr. Silverman. He's a criminal psychologist. Yep, uh, and uh, also extremely hardcore video game voice actor. Oh. Be- because he, his resume is even longer than fucking Lance Henriksen's. And it's it's like it's basically every major video game franchise somehow carries his name in the acting cast. He's been in Metal Gear Solid. He's been in in the Monkey Islands. He's has been in World of Warcraft, that small indie game that absolutely fucking no one played. <laughs> like like if if you have played a video game after you know the release of I, I don't know God, goddamn Soldier of Fortune two. You most likely have played a video game that has has Air Bowen in it. Well, these are so big names that uh, I guess we have to go to less known names. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Adam Greenberg doing the cinematography. And did the T1, T2 and Ghost from 1990. Originally born in Krakow, Poland, but an Israeli-American, as explained in the T2 episode. Anything else about the casting crew? Uh, not really. We have kind of covered all the heavy names from yeah. the list. After this one, you know, after these guys, it becomes kind of a, a list of fading careers. If you don't count in Dick Miller, who is that guy on the left or the dude who makes a side role in pretty much basically in everything. In here, he's clerk at the pawn shop who sells already a bunch of guns. And then, then he's the main hero's neighbor in or the Mr. Flutterman in the Kremlins movies and like like a ton of these small I'm here parts in different films. Paul Winfield unfortunately passed away in 2004. Apparently he looks like shit in this film. I just thought we could bring it up. Because dead guys. Yes. Also known for Star Trek. The Wrath of Khan. Yeah and 
kind of a faded away completely after the 90s. Like Mars Attacks was, I, I guess Mars Attacks was the, the last really a big name production under him. Since that was directed by Tim Burton. And before that I would say Renny Harlin's Cliffhanger. And to wrap it all up, there is Bill Paxton appearing as that one punk that Arnie yes. gets over. Yes, thank you. Can't forget that one. No, also also from Aliens and yep. Twister and other mainstream films. Would it be scene by scene? Well, why not? We start with the jerkily flying HK machinery in the futurist scene. I'm surprised that they left that kind of a jerky flight into the first shot of the film. But they did. They tried to avoid that, but they just couldn't quite avoid that in 1984 with this budget. But other than that, I think this scene looks really amazing. It sets the tone very well. It, it's yeah, it's yeah. Kind, of, kind of a, it is an opening that grabs your attention immediately. Most notably because there is a lot of colorful lasers going pew 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 and people running and also a huge load of human skulls. Yeah. There was uh, one shot where in the foreground you have the skull. That skull was full size and the background skulls were miniature size. And the cinematographer was smart enough to bring something more real into the forefront to give the idea for the audience that the, the rest of it might be real also. Then we get to the titles where we have music that is kind of out of sync, actually. It, 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 tries, to, it tries to present the heartbeat of, of Schwarzenegger's Terminator, who, yeah. who does not have a heart. So, according to the composer, it's, it's a combination. It's a combination of the love theme and Terminator's heartbeat. Yeah, Brad Fiedel was not too interested about the film in the beginning. First of all, a small production, and probably he didn't get paid quite a lot for this one. But once he saw the film and understood what it's about, it's like this constant theme around the interviews of this film, that after that one he was so on board, which could of course be just marketing nonsense. But I don't think that is quite the case in the case of this film, so... Not, not, not necessarily a case with him, but if you t- take the soundtrack on its own and listen through it, you kind of uh, get this... Well, at times you get a bit repetitious tone from it. Yeah. And I, I would say that might be because of... Well, A, when it comes came to production altogether, it, it was very string on budget, meaning also that the, that the composing of the soundtrack was done with the the least money that you can do it and also the time was an issue he didn't have that many days to work on making the soundtrack true my understanding is that he was quite on a limited time scale here but managed to pull it off brad fiedel was playing with with kind of experimental systems and he was able to pull on this very mechanical very what we call the Terminator-ish music, and he struggled to keep the music in sync with the other element that he was using, whatever it was. And I feel that sometimes you can hear that, that the music is out of sync, and it's definitely not as tight what you get in the Terminator 2, where everything is just right. 
Yes, surprisingly the sequel that got all the money put into it, sounds and looks and, yeah. well, hell, e- even feels more polished and more grandiose. Absolutely, absolutely. And I also feel that the, in this film they could have made it feel uh, quite a lot more polished if you if you would have left out some of those uh, Stan Winston anim- animatronics, in fact, because the Arnold faces are fooling no one. Yep. But... Yep, there's a, there are a couple of FX thoughts later in the film. Yeah, I'm sure that, we will that, get to that. that. that yeah, that, that actually look more fake than anything in the cabinet of Madame Tussauds. <laughs> but the argument for using that fake head was to give more depth for the appearance of Arnold, where you can see the eye inside the skull and all that. But for me, it just kind of takes me out. It wasn't worth it. That kind of sounds like an explanation that James Cameron would come up with. And they even admitted that the makeup came to look much better than they thought it would. And as far as I'm concerned, they could have just gone with the makeup in most of those scenes, if not all of those moments where you see the fake head. Yup. There again, something that James Cameron most definitely did not admit was the source of his goddamn story. A dream. (laughs) <laughs> Two episodes of Outer Limits. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, like, there was this huge debacle after the film was released where Harlan Ellison, the sci-fi author, actually sued the entire production, or MGM, for oh, copyright yeah. infringement of two of his stories. Yeah, and Cameron got a gag order, and later on he told the full story that it was all bullshit and he came up with it himself. So. Yeah, or like they, they set out it out of court. Was it something like 75000 that the MGM eventually paid Ellison for, uh, to, to pull the case back? But it, it wasn't a huge deal of money. But most notably, Ellison did get, get a credit in, in the film's opening credits. But there, there was something like the third of the sum that MGM paid, paid Ellison was held back a number of years and only paid after that time period had elapsed if Ellison agreed to keep his mouth shut and not to actually disclose what happened in the, to the public. Yeah, I, I understand that Cameron was totally against the whole decision to put her name on, on the credits. Cameron was completely against this, yeah. And and still, I guess, is pissed off that they settled it with Ellison. So that kind of tells me that uh, this Ellison is uh, just connecting some dots that are not there. And sure, there are so many stories that you can see some of your own work in some something else as well. So well, I, I haven't seen the, I haven't seen her work, so I cannot comment further, of course. I actually did watch the two episodes, which are kind of the crux of the argument here. That would okay. be the soldier and a demon with a glass hand. Yeah. And if uh, the usual route is that you you completely ignore the demon with a glass hand and simply look at the soldier and then make the argument that it's not really that obvious and not that affected. So it shouldn't be counted, and most likely the case is that they simply, out of happenstance, came up with the same type of an idea, Edison and Cameron. But okay. if you look at look both of the episodes, 
like prison, uh, like soldier and demon with a glass hand, I would say there is a surprisingly lot of of similarities. Hmm. Like if, if you if you tie tie the two outer limits episodes together and then compare that to Terminator, there is quite a lot of similarities. Okay, interesting. And, and, yeah, and when, when it comes to you know, when it comes to Cameron being pissed at MGM for settling with Ellison. It's kind of a hilarious thing how Cameron was the pastor who actually gave Ellison the smoking gun on this matter. Yeah? Yep. Because, uh, well, MGM has never actually given given the official version. But how it has been reported going was that when the movie was coming out, uh, Star Rock magazine got an interview from Cameron, who, during that interview quoted that he got the idea from a couple of Outer Limits segments. If I remember correctly, was the quote something like... Once again, to try to remember what, what Cameron actually said word by word. <laughs> when, when, yeah. when doing this on a free flow and not, not by a script, it's kind of a difficult, but if, if I remember correctly, the exact quote was, I ripped off a couple of Harlan Ellison stories. Okay. And uh, this was something that was said to Starlock. This was not, however, the the actual interview that was published by Starlock because MGM appeared and put a gag order on Starlock and demanded that they edit the interview before publishing it. But what MGM did not know was that Ellison also did some writing for Starlock and he had friends and colleagues within the magazine and one of his friends slipped out the unedited transcript of that interview. And that is what Ellison actually took to MGM oh. and took to court and showed that, well, well, here it is coming from the director's mouth. And that is when MGM decided to settle with uh, Ellison. Oh, no. Well, busted, I guess. Well, yeah. Like I said, never have been officially confirmed by MGM. But this is kind of the story that you come across in, for example, in James Cameron's biography, which was written by Mark Safiro. <laughs> All right. We are in the scene where Arnold arrives in the 1984 truck driver leaves. Bill Paxton gets kind of knifed, I believe, in this scene. Reese arrives. It's 12th May 1984. Interestingly, there's this text in the police cars. In 1984, in this film, there's actually two versions of what's, what is in the police car. There's the text, to care and to protect. Later in the parking lot, you see, dedicated to serve. I guess it's on the other side of those cars. And in T2, it says, to protect and to serve. Now, both of these were filmed in California when the T-1000 arrives to the house of John Connor to get more information about the foster parents. So there, there was some story about this. Was it that they were just updating like their slogan in the real uh, LAPD police forces or what was this about? I'm not sure, but that's how they changed. Reese's game face is visible already in this introductory scene when he's running in the shopping mall. And later you see it when he's uh, throwing the the pipe bombs at the 800. You know, this, ha ha ha, I'm gonna get you now face. Sarah is introduced 
weird happy drama music is played at this moment, like from a random TV series or something. Like, okay. of course, we have to admit that Bradfield was under pressure, under a little bit of time, only to do the soundtrack. Not sure if this happy piece of music is even on the soundtrack. Could have been. I haven't listened to it in a while. I'm, I'm afraid. I know. I'm, I'm just completely certain if, if on the official movie soundtrack, if it holds any of the licensed songs. Mm. Because the film does use a number of, of actual songs that have been licensed. So you think that this Sarah Connor introductory music was something else, not from Fido's keyboards? I, 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 w- I would hesitate to guess that it is something else. Much like, for example, yeah. the nightclub song well, and ba- basically anything that Sarah's friend listens through her Walkman. That's true. Those are clear cases when there's somebody singing, actually. I don't think it was Fiddle singing, but we could check that out after this episode. It most definitely doesn't sound like Fiddle. Maybe he's as talented voice artist as me. <laughs> Terminator is in the gun store. And the weapon seller actor actually died only recently in January 2019. Was he shot? Yes. In this film. <laughs> Wrong. Yeah, I I never like how in the film's universe, both characters, both Terminator and Reese can just run around the streets really badly hiding the massive arsenal of guns they are carrying and nobody pays any notice. Like this this is something that caught my eye when when Reese was introduced in the film while he's being chased by the cops and he manages to get that that shotgun which he hides under his, his coat. And if you ever actually have tried to, quote-unquote, secretly transport a shotgun un- under your trench coat, it is actually hard as hell and most likely to fail. Haven't tried. Because it's e- extremely obvious to no- notice your shotgun barrel peeking un- underneath the coat, and, and yet Reese pulls it off completely. And later on in the film, Arnold walks around, and travels around with, with half of Vietnam in his gun back. And once again, fucking nobody pays any attention. Two points. Michael Bean is a pretty skinny actor. Second point, he was carrying this kind of a, wearing this kind of a coat that has this, this massive sleeves, so it could kind of help him out. No, it wouldn't. It, it can help him out after he shows off the barrel, or, or the stump of the gun, whichever it is that he actually shows off. But when he originally acquires the shotgun, like that, that is something that you simply can't hide underneath your coat. I don't want to know how you know this. You, you, you kind of have to know all this, all this random stuff when you are co-host on a film podcast. <laughs> Especially this one. Kills the first Sarah Connor now. They uh, notice that the laser is not on in the first shot. I read that Arnold had to push on this uh, laser so that it would be would be on and it would require like a battery power at the time because they were not able to get different kind of laser than this rather electricity consuming laser and they see the news on the television telly you're dead honey reese has a war dream this is very very you can see that they made a lot of effort beforehand to put everything together you have back projections you have miniatures you have a back projection of the miniatures where the actors are in real time running in front of it 
and stuff in front of them as well. And looks pretty great. It, it does, it does. Stan Winston most definitely is a master of his craft. Yes. Like, and co- coming from here, if, if I remember correctly, right off after the after making effects on the thing. Because originally the special effects guy that Cameron wanted was Dick Smith, who had made the yeah made the effects on Milos Forman's film Amadeus. But Smith refused the gig, so they got Stan Winston, who yeah. on, on top of the models and and the stop motion effects also actually did build physical copies of parts of the Terminator's body. Like the upper half of the torso and and the legs, so that you can get those clear shots of of Terminator walking and those clear shots of of his upper half turning. Mr. Smith was indeed approached for this film. He turned it down, but said that he is not the right guy to do it. Stan Winston is. Stan Winston came into the project kind of high and proud. All right, let's see what I can do for you kids, or that kind of a approach. But when he saw the endoskeleton painting of Jim Cameron, he was totally on board. Oh my god, oh my god, I have to be in your low-budget film. That's at least as per one of the documentaries. Always when watching this, have to always keep in mind, though, that these are also promotional pieces. For, for the production house, for the film, for the director. So... Take of it what you will. There's a lot of sadness in this film, Henrik. I mean, it's said to be like a hopeful film in the end for the people who get it. Although there is a lot of sadness and it's a very dark film. This starts off already with the Sarah's date or Sarah's boyfriend, whatever it is, and tells over the recording that uh, he has pulled off the date. And this, this just gets darker and darker, like... Her mother gets murdered, her friends get murdered. There's no one left by the end of the film, really, for her. Yeah, overall, like basically through every aspect of filmmaking, this is a hell of a lot darker than its sequel. Uh, Exactly. Yeah, this, this is more grounded. There is much more, for example, human collateral. But the violence is constantly targeted against humans instead of another and kind of a non-living thing, like another Terminator, like in the sequel, because the effects work simply weren't up to standard in 84 when when this one was shot. So Cameron had to scrap the whole idea of two Terminators fighting. But but overall, like, even if you you watch this, look at the cinematography here on this film and, and compare that to T2. Ooh, boy. It's, it's much more dark. It's, First of all, the coloring and the tones, they, they are they are way more darker here. This takes more at place on nighttime and during office buildings and like police station and all other these cramped small office spaces and indoor spaces than than the second one which has more these these outdoor scenes in it. And hell, you know like as as much as you labor on you want to laugh at at Arnold's waxy fake face even that is kind of a more horrible depiction of the terminator kind of taking those organic parts out of him 
and exposing the the exoskeleton underneath the skin that the similar scene in in T2 like when when the battle bruised Arnold is shown here it is at times it is downright like horror movie material when you contrast that to to how it's shown in Terminator where you get uh, like a like a scalp a piece of scalp missing and you get that chrome metal skull showing and in T2 when when Arnold has taken damage he looks macho and he looks heroic hmm. and and in here both Reese and the Terminator they look downright creeps <laughs> and you get this disgusting kind of a even kind of a sleazy wipe out of the two of them Reese is a total creep like the dude travels through time from his own time 2029 or whatever and to 1984, because he's romantically interested in the mother of the great military leader, John Connor, who is his friend, and also carries a picture of that great military leader's mother in his back pocket. <laughs> not, not only that, but, but goddamn, Reese's love towards Sarah has been artificially manufactured. It's... Um, it's uh, really quick, yeah. And then to emphasize it in the end that they loved for a lifetime's worth. That's a bit too much, way too much. Yeah, but, you know, when you look at the concept, like, Reese has never actually known Sarah Connor and never even properly meets her. But he is in love with her even before he gets sent back in time because John Connor has shown him a picture of his mom and dared him... All, all these great aspects, how how she's this great lady, and and his mom is is something completely else. So so that that is kind of a goddamn like Reese is in love with Sarah Connor because because Sarah's son has told all these things to Reese about his mom. Yeah, and all, only thing he has is just this picture. Yeah, that he prob- probably kind of. I don't know if if John Connor would be really willing to be, give that picture just like that to Reese. I, I I would say that most likely he has been extremely willing, and he uh, I I would easily believe that that when when John has given that picture to Reese, he has made a huge number how significant this picture is and how significant this moment of me giving you this picture is. Because, mm. like, the way I see it is that John Connor kind of a brainwashes Reese to be in love with his mom before <laughs> he sends Reese back in time to boink his mom. <laughs> this is getting really multi-layered now. Yeah, 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 but but there there is still, like, this, this weird Christ-like element in Reese, Reese's relationship to Sarah, Sarah Connor. Like, John Connor is, is kind of a Christ allegory throughout the first two Terminator films. And the mm-hmm. groundwork for that kind of is laid already in, in the first one. Well, uh, being uh, semi-fresh from the Matrix, I can see that. Christ figures. Yeah, but it, it's like, like with Terminator, it's, it's the same similar type of deal, like, for example, with Robocop, which also has the Christ allegory running underneath it and in in both of these films it, it is subtle enough the chosen one the, the chosen one 
the, the fact that well, like Jesus Christ, where John Connor, they they say, share the same initials, like JC. The 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 fact that John Connor is the is the pro- prophesized savior of of human race, who even goddamn in the end by going through physical and emotional turmoil in Terminator 2 kind of saves the human race by pushing the Tin Man into this huge ball of, of molded metal. And and the fact that, just like in, in Bible, where where God kind of recreates himself as Jesus by simply using, I don't know, some kind of a Bible magic to get Mary pregnant without f- himself physically taking part in the act. In here, John Connor sends Kyle Reese back in time so that Kyle can point his mom and this way give birth to Kyle. So there is this mysterious, kind of a supernatural element on how how John Connor and Jesus Christ both are con- being conceived. Ginger has sex. They are starting to think at the police station that this guy is going to be named the phone book killer. Well, how do I look like shit, boss? Your mama. And we get to the second victim called Connor. Creepy guy in the background is checking out uh, our Sarah Connor while she tries to take the call after getting the news that the second Sarah Connor has been has been taken out of the picture. Followed by Reese. Goes to the club Tech Noir. Legendary Tech Noir. Check out some legendary yeah. 80s hair. And dance moves. Yeah. In between this, there's an iguana attack. <laughs> An attack by the Terminator himself. Don't make me bust you up, man. And um, fight at the club ensues when Terminator comes in. Police is sent, but they are too slow. All of this, you know, intricate process of traveling through time to 1984. This just got me thinking wouldn't it have been easier to just travel back in time to like 1987 when when john connor was born although actually in terminator 2 you can see that he was born in 1991 and the film would be based on 1997 which would make him like six years or five years old but um, he's 13 so go figure this thing out but um if the Terminator would have just traveled to 1987 when he should have been born and then killed the defenseless little baby, John Connor, that could have been the sequel. They could have just done it in this first one. Easier target, you know, than yeah. a mother. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the time machine is unable to make the jump to 1985. Like, it, it physically can't do that because it has read the script and, and knows that if Terminator would travel to 1985, there would no be franchise. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> they come with we come with me if you want to live. Your line is used, of course, repeated in T2 by Arnold himself. Car chase ensues. Sarkonor has a weird reaction to the helping hand of Kyle, who actually said this come with we if you want to live. And what does she do after that in the car? Please don't hurt me. Why would he hurt her? I mean, of course she's shocked at all but uh, that's a weird thought process yeah well why would she actually believe that kyle wouldn't be some some weirdo who is actually five seconds away of thinking about rape because, because wha- look, look at the situation on, on her end she has just heard that two sarah, sarah connors have been murdered by a at this point yet 
by an unknown assailant. And then he has seen this creepy dude following her throughout the city. And then all of a sudden there is a gunfight at the discotheque. And she almost buys it already. And then there is all, all that Arnold Schwarzenegger craziness going on during the chase. So uh, I too wouldn't be too trusting of Kyle Reese yet at this point. Could be, could be. Or if I were Sarah Connor, I would probably try to think it logically in this moment that uh, maybe more whatever is logical at this point. But think that uh, Kyle Reese would actually be some kind of an undercover agent out there to help him. Because that's what, that's what he does. Yeah, who simply, you know, in order to keep his cover, goes on completely crazy rants about I'm the man from the future, and the future is shit, and the other guy is a robot, and nobody can die. Yeah, because I mean, that, that is the whole Kyle Reese kitsch throughout the film. Yeah, that's just Kyle Reese doing the exposition, man. And yeah. clearly he was in a hurry to do so, which I thought was always kind of hilarious. But it's great that they do it uh, during the action so that it's not monotonous and boring. And, you know, it's done, at, it's expertly executed throughout the film, like the exposition at the police station where it's fitting when they're having the interview of Kyle Reese. So it makes complete sense. Yeah, the, the first one is, is a film that has like zero fat in it. Like yeah. Every single scene that happens has a narrative purpose and is important and they they don't waste time in in anything in, in this film. This I feel was definitely a passion of passion project for James Cameron and for most of the crew and adding to this fact when Arnold was signed by Dino De Laurenti to do some further work for him for the next 8-10 months then the team had to wait for Arnold because that's what they decided to do good for them they had 8-10 to 10 additional months to tweak up everything to the finest detail like the storyboard and I think this has paid off it has of course like you mentioned earlier it also does create the situation where where for example Sarah Connor falling for Kyle Reese in course of the movie, it does come a bit out of the left field because they they share like what two or three days together. This could be also due to the fact that the only demands that Orion Pictures was trying to put into the film those were a canine Terminator for Kyle Reese that would travel back in time here, and the second wish was to make the love story stronger between the two. And James Cameron said no to the first idea and said yes to the second one. Which may, may have been the right call to make. Yeah. To defend the producers here. Because god damn it, if the love story element wouldn't have been there. And like, like I can see how rapey the whole I, I must conceive John Connor scene could have been had the love story been on a lesser footing than it now is here on the film. Because it barely can can be taken as consensual in the finished film, like in this this finished version of Terminator. And if it would have been any bit more obscure, Sarah Connor falling over Kyle Reese, there would have been a strong possibility that it would have given the, the whole sex scene quite uncomfortable angle. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's a lot of exposition indeed. Uh, the 600 series had apparently rubber skin and then they got the real skin and the machines don't feel physical pain and they don't, do not appear to understand human emotions as further shown in T2. So this is the question for the night. So would a machine still get smart enough to kill humans? And to what end if they can't feel things? So what is the non-feelings-based logic to kill humans once again? To save the planet from the evil humans? Again, to what end for a machine, for a non-caring machine? Or is the brains of the Cyberdynes smarter in the headquarters than a T-800? Possibly, and most likely. But you don't get it from the main characters of the film. That T-800 definitely doesn't understand emotions until he's been programmed or, or he's led in for example in the t2 to learn and he does but he still doesn't feel or understand he just understands it mechanically you get this feeling so you cry and once again we are in the same trenches as in the t2 episode but if you don't feel de facto feel then why make why bother why do anything This is kind of the same discussion that we had in Matrix. Yeah. You also voiced your voiced your displeasure with with these sci-fi films that don't fully explain why does the AI turn against humanity. Uh, before we get too deep into the trenches, you could of course take it like that that the, well the the humans were making these things, they got smarter. They were programmed in for some purpose. Something went wrong in that, in the sense that they just now view the humans as an enemy. And there could be that there is no actual point to it at all. And you could just consider it as some kind of a virus. Well, yeah, maybe that would be the kind of a most logical kind of a take to take here. Yeah, because if you don't, if you don't feel, why do you conquer? What's the point of you being at the top of the, well, bolts and brains chain? Yeah, of course, the, the kind of a problem with that is that I, I don't know if, if they already, they, I, I like if I remember correctly, they already mentioned this, this in T2, but they most definitely make a huge point about this in Terminator 3, The Rise of the Machines, that Skynet receives a consciousness. It it once again we have an AI who becomes conscious of itself, and that is pretty much the only explanation that the franchise has ever given to us on the question why Skynet turns against humanity. Yeah, but the but the crew didn't become enough conscious to make a good film. Yeah, that they that they didn't. But yeah, I'm I'm with you. The The Skynet turning against humanity is, is never explained that well in, in in Terminator franchise. I don't know. Did they try to explain this one? This in in Salvation, where that was there, there was the weird CGI construct of Skynet's face that looked exactly like Helen Bohem Carter, and and that had some some dialogue. I don't know if Skynet tried to make its case there because i don't remember that film that well at all whether it was explained in terminator salvation or not i'm sure that nobody cares 
Well, James Cameron sure as shit didn't care. Because he, he never wrote down an explanation why Skynet attacks. If, if, yeah. if you take, take this as, as a kind of, kind of a meta aspect, in that case you get the reasoning why the war has happened, because it ties into the whole post-Watergate, Cold War paranoia-esque feel that the society and the world had during the 80s. It was the running theme back in sci-fi during those days that there is a super AI that becomes conscious or or becomes not, but something goes haywire in those cases. And and the, but the end result is that the AI either does or threatens to do a nuclear launch. In, in Terminator, Skynet wipes off the entire humanity by causing the nuclear war. And it, it masquerades this by making it look like it's, it's U- US and the Soviets shooting at each other, but in reality it's Skynet, and the humanity gets wiped out in the nuclear Armageddon. Uh, in, in war ga- games, which also is low sci-fi film about supercomputer go- going nuts, so in there, the computer tries to start a nuclear war because of faulty programming. So the supercomputer becoming sentient and immediately deciding to, to cause a nuclear holocaust is something that was the hallmark and, and staple of, of 80s sci-fi. So that, of course, you know, in, in meta way, that explains why Skynet turns against Skynet. Because that was kind of the mental sidegeist of the 80s, and this is 80s sci-fi film. Would be nice to know what was actually the zeitgeist of the 1984 regarding, like, the end of the world scenarios depicted in the first Terminator, that the AI is this malevolent force that will take over, and nuclear weapons and all that are in the equation. I guess this wasn't the prevalent theme back in those days, because that would explain the massive hype behind this film and how, why it was so successful. Four million dollars was it that was put into this production? Let me check that real quickie. No, a little bit it, it was four or six million, something like that. Still peanuts yeah. in the end. Yeah, six million four hundred thousand and the worldwide gross seventy-eight point five million. Anyway, yeah. so and uh, taking into the consideration that whenever we are talking about malevolent AI or artificial intelligence or the AI coming self-aware, you check any kind of newspaper articles about that and chances are that the the picture that they go with for that article is the endoskeleton from the Terminator. Most likely. Because everybody connects it with that. Yeah, the Terminator endoskeleton is kind of a, the most iconic and easiest to use a vi- visual image of of a malevolent AI. Yeah. We get to the cop station and there's the interview or interrogation of Kyle Reese. I think the film crew, mainly I think James Cameron does something really smart here. So he makes uh, the criminal psychologist to crack jokes with um, Lance Henriksen at this situation about the story that he's telling. So it's giving kind of this layer for the audience that that. Even the regular people here don't believe his story. Like, of course, uh, of course they don't. But, you know, adding humor like this retroactive abortion stuff, you know, kind of, what's the word? Mm. 
Yeah, well, it kind of ironically gives uh, gravita to what he's saying in the world of the film. It does, and it, it, it the interview also, or, or the interrogation, whichever this actually is, since we are dealing with a shrink here, it, it also works was an, as an exposition dump, where they very sneakily can pass, pass by you all the mechanics of the time travel. Like the fact that you have to travel alone, naked, and nothing, uh, nothing, nothing dead can come through the time, the time portal or the time machine. Yeah, this is a really, I think, throughout the film is very smart filmmaking. This is how you do exposition. You make the dialogue interesting, worth your while. You choose the appropriate setting for it so that it's not just thrown out there lazily because just you have to. Yeah, a lesser lesser filmmaker would have had this exact same scene or, or this I- exact same exposition dumped on on the audiences by simply having having Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor in some room and Sarah just asks from Kyle like how does time travel work and then then Kyle explains this uh, would explain it that that would have been what. I, I would say a typical Hollywood hack director would have done yeah. in this situation. There is more of this background story. Terminator knew only the city where Sarah Connor lives, so that's actually a good piece of uh, information because, uh, well, you would think that the Terminator would know absolutely everything about the past, but uh, somehow not. Yeah, it's kind of giving Terminator the full dossier on relating to his mission would have Kind of a being the smart thing to do from Skynet's end. That's right. So this 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 ex- explains why in the beginning of the film Terminator had to see the trouble of killing the Sarah Connors in order. Yeah. Well, fight at the cop station. Reese comes to get Sarah from the room. It seems like Sarah hesitates for a second before he decides to call for Reese and join him. She wasn't certain whether she would join him or not. Then they go under the bridge or sewer or whatever it is. And Kyle starts talking about the future, what it's all about. This uh, sequence from the future, how did you take it? Did you take it that it was the dream of Sarah Connor or was it actually something that happened? Or kind of both? I'm taking it that it is something that happened to Kyle. Yeah. But the film tries to picture it out like as a dream sequence. Sarah Connor makes the dialogue notion that she just had a dream and that ties the dream in into the sequence of events that we have seen playing out. Sarah Connor wakes up and makes the notion of the dogs. Yeah, to me it then would seem like when Kyle Reese is telling the story then it's actually so exciting that uh, Sarah Connor falls asleep during it and then starts dreaming which i guess doesn't make much sense i would take it so that she hears the story and then falls asleep on kyle reese's lap and then tells that she saw a dream about some dogs most likely wiener dogs so not connected in any way yeah but even if if you would take it that kyle reese has told sarah in vivid detail about the future and and what their li- lives in in the future are like. I, I still think that that Sarah Connor being able to dream how the dogs actually operate in the future, to, like the elements, how they sniff you out, are you a human or or a Terminator? 
That 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 is so fine-tuned detail in her dream that I'm actually going bullshit. Like I I I think that Sarah Connor's dream sequence here it, it is one of the few moments where the film fumbles a bit. I always knew that you're the Terminator. I can hear the dogs barking. <laughs> well, well, I, I would say that can't come off as any kind of a surprise to our listeners who have had to listen to my monotonous voice for what fifty-nine episodes already. No, but really but, sneaky. Uh, so, so that you're the more the feelings-based. Oh, I got you there. <laughs> well played. But it's time for fuck you, asshole. Gotta wonder, was it really necessary to use the Winston prop here once again? So it's obviously not Arnold. And <laughs> there's the cleaner guy who knocks on the door. And did you notice in what rhythm he's knocking the door? Actually, I didn't. <laughs> that went completely past me. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> what only was missing here was... Sinking this knocking with Fiddle's music. Yeah. Okay, pipe bomb is being manufactured in this home laboratory. I was kind of surprised that Adam Greenberg is doing the cinematography for this one as well, because in Terminator 2 it's iconic, it's very wide, and it's beautiful, and uh, very, like, up to the fine details, great. Here, well, it's dark... And most of the shooting is done at night, so that makes sense in that sense. But the cinematography is not anything crazy here. Not anything crazy. You you think that you'd go first for the cinematography and production designer and see how they would play together nicely, because that's something that you definitely need for a low-production film to make it everlasting. But uh, yes, money was tight, so... And you also need decent actors, so who knows what was the deal. I feel that Greenberg is still kind of in his early days here. Maybe, yeah, I, I, I can give you that much. Even though I do feel that at times, like, like there, there, there are moments where, where the cinematography is really groundbreaking. Yeah, well, actually, the guy has worked since the 60s, so he should be quite established in his trade by the Terminator, but um, could also, of course, have to do with that this was made in 1.85 aspect ratio, whereas Terminator 2 went full wacko. I think it's 2.40, so it's very wide. Gives you different possibilities. Yeah, and, and I, I can understand that not every shot in, in a film can be a masterpiece. Yeah. Like, you, you are going to have those run-of-the-mill shots in your film, no matter what you try to do. Well, this, this is... There, there, are, there are legit moments that I absolutely love in, in this film. Mostly they are... Well, either they are from the action scenes, like, for example, the police station shootout, or then they are those close-ups on Arnold's face. Like, when he's driving a car and there is... The camera is extremely close to Arnold as he's looking around him, and there is this... Almost a fish islands effect a bit in the edges of the image, and that looks that looks once again almost like like a fucking horror film. Like like there is that feverish element that that there is a certain type of mania going on in those shots. Or or for example the 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 moment couple of scenes ago back back in the hotel room 
when Arnold had taken his eye out and he's scanning through the Sarah Connor's notebook or the ledger to fi- find the mom's phone number. Mm. And and there is that close-up on Arnold's face. It still, still, yeah, the wax face looks fake as hell. But th- there is that moment when there are the flies have, are gathering around Arnold's missing eye. He's looking at the ledger with, with an empty stare and his mouth is is just a little bit open. And that is also so, like something that is something like straight out of, out of a horror film. Mm, yeah. And by God, I, I do love those moments in this film. Well, we have talked about Lance Henriksen and he was the first one that was considered for the role of Terminator. And uh, the idea was behind that that they would just use some guy who looks kind of more like an average, ordinary day guy. And yeah, when, I, because... when I started to picture this in my head, it kind of makes me feel that with Lance Henriksen, this could have been even way creepier film. It would have. And it's like James Cameron actually said that the whole production kind of, the whole image of the film changed the day that they casted Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because it wasn't this, it wasn't so much of a horror or he didn't use those words but well Schwarzenegger is the guy that stands out from the crowd so there is not that kind of a surprise element in a way yeah that is something that Cameron himself also admitted that that the film states that Terminator is supposed to be an infiltration unit right and god damn it Arnold Schwarzenegger with those muscles that he had back in the day he couldn't infiltrate anything except maybe a goddamn car lot and a store selling used washing machines because the dude is huge and yeah yeah just look at the guy in the in the noir club and (laughs) yeah yeah. infiltration going on totally yep and and with with Lance Henriksen, I, I'm fully with you on the notion that Lance Henriksen most likely would have given even even more creepier performance here because a Lance Henriksen is is a goddamn class act when you have to pull off this subtle. He is normally functioning human being, but there is just something off on him. Yeah, like, so, something behind the eyes. Which you can't see because he acts completely natural, but you kind of get this feeling. Like if, if you watch watch some some of the pivotal episodes, for example, from the TV series Millennium, mm-hmm. or watch him in Aliens, where he actually does play a cyborg or android, or a- any of these where where Henriksen has to portray a character that that by all means is completely functioning normal human being. But behind his his psyche, he either is is made up like like an android, or there is something going on with him psychologically. Yeah, and there's a good reason why he was cast as the android for for the Alien sequels. Yeah, and he still has that kind of certain coldness to his looks. He was also playing the Terminator when they were trying to convince that one producer to to get interested in the Terminator, the film, Lance Henriksen was sitting at the office fully on his role and had some kind of a metal teeth 
in his mouth. Yeah. Just standing there robotically and creeped everybody out. Somebody was like probably five seconds away from calling the police. And finally James Cameron came into the room and said, Oh, Lance Henriksen, hey, old buddy. So that kind of eased up the tension. Yeah. Well, well when they switched Lance to, to Schwarzenegger, they, they still kept Lance in, in the film. Now they simply cast him to play one of the detectives trying to piece together the Terminator's murders. But I, I guess or I, I'm fairly positive that one of the reasons why Cameron at no point actually let Henriksen go of the production was because even already at this point in, in 84, Lance Henriksen was somewhat of a name. So get, getting... Henriksen tied to your production kind of made certain that you would get the budget or you you would get enough money to make some kind of a film simply by having Lance Henriksen in your production. And I, I'm willing to believe that this was one of the motives why e- even when it became clear to, to Cameron that Henriksen would not be playing the Terminator, he still kept Henriksen in the production. Yep. It seemed like Schwarzenegger wasn't really into the production in the beginning. He was uh, doing an interview for Conan the Barbarian and he was wearing, was it shoes that were belonging to the next production that he was involved in, which was ter- the Terminator. And then the interviewer asked him about this and uh, Arnold just kind of brushed it off with, uh, oh, I'm doing some shit movie next. Shouldn't take more than a couple of weeks or whatever it was. Something like that, and I guess that Arnold was kind of a, he originally appeared into the production to to get the paycheck, to get the next film done, and he was counting on that since this is a smaller production, even if, if this one fails, it still doesn't cause a dent to his career and ruin yeah. his resume, because this is going to be something that flies off the, uh, under the radar. If it would have been a stinker, yeah. He would have would have probably not been nailed to the cross because nobody would know about it. Yeah. But uh, I feel like uh, these were coming from his m- mouth or his thoughts before he started shooting it. Because there was uh, legitimately a period where he was really excited about the film as well. So, who knows? Yeah. And I, I guess also Cameron became excited about Arnold because when Arnold originally voiced his interest towards the project. This was before before Cameron and Arnold actually met face to face. But but you know, before that moment, Cameron actually was extremely hesitant to to even meet with Arnold and to consider Arnold appearing in, in his movie. Yeah, well it went this way that uh, well they were considering him for the role of the hero, but then then James Cameron was not too into it, and when he was prepping for the moment to meet with Schwarzenegger, he was ready to pick on a fight with him to get rid of him. Yeah, he was. But before before he could pick up the fight, Schwarzenegger then uh, said that, well, Jimmy, I'm not interested in this uh, hero's part, but uh, I, I would like to play the Terminator. And then James Cameron kind of processed that and then thought it was a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Schwarzenegger started to talk about how he kind of envisioned the villain of the film. And it, it was those discussions with, with Cameron that actually won Cameron over. 
Kind of interesting that you would not even think about casting Schwarzenegger for the baddies role because, well, the end result is uh, what it is. But I guess they were so hung up on, so in their head, going with something on the likes of Lance Henriksen, so that they that didn't even cross their minds. I, I that that could have been the case, but I'm not completely sure about it because when it came to thinking about who to cast in the role of the Terminator, the whole process is kind of a clusterfuck where you can't find a common nominator between the different actors who were considered. Because on top of Lance Henriksen, some names that were were thought or were were approached to play the Terminator were Mel Gibson, who is a a slim character and and not that muscular type, but also Sylvester Stallone. And O.J. Simpson. And O.J. Simpson. And from these guys... Mel Gibson and Stallone turned the, the script down and stated that they were not interested. And with O.J. Simpson, he was too beyond reasonable doubt to play a killer. But, but for example, with, with O.J., you kind of have to ask what actually were they looking for? Because O.J. also is, is very big and, and muscular guy, type of guy. Well, and, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, like and in which which order was this <laughs> process going through? Like, did you first consider Stallone and then Schwarzenegger was your second option or what? Yeah, uh, uh, and when when you look at the acting careers of, of these people, like Mel Gibson and Sylvester Stallone, okay, they are action stars. I, I can understand that you are considering them to play, play the Terminator. Lance Henriksen has done pretty much everything, so... Yeah, he he has the range that you can you can simply picture yourself a project and and picture Lance Henriksen into that project. But OJ goddamn Simpson, I I mean that the dude's background coming to this was in comedies. Like like he made made his landmark in the Naked Gun series, and that is the that is like like the role of. Of OJ's role, role in Naked Gun and and the type of film that that is Terminator and, and the role of Terminator, there is something completely different from the Naked Gun films. Like it, it's it's fair fair to say that when it comes to OJ Simpson and Terminator as a project, the the role just didn't fit like a glove. Well, I I I don't know about that because he is also known for terminating. Armed robbery, a kidnapping. <laughs> that that he is, that he is. <laughs> but but, but <laughs> I I I I wonder if that that was something that that OJ. But yeah, it's it's safe to say that at, at the end the production ended, ended up running from OJ, like OJ ran from the cops. Okay, we get to the pipe bombs. Pipe bomb, which is an improvised explosive device, which uses a pipe. There's a pipe, and it's blocked from both ends by two caps sealed with explosive material. And between one of those caps, you have a lead, which goes to the part where you ignite it. Well, duh, how do you explain that correctly? (laughs) Lead, Lead comes from between the cap, and then you light up the lead, obviously. Like, in, in desperation, to, to get more listeners, are, are you really becoming so edgy that you are starting to spread bomb-making tips 
into podcast. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, yeah, it's a just, just, open source bomb. Everybody know, can do it. Just, just you know, <clears throat> as a response to our number one fan, not FBI. Definitely not the cops. <laughs> Definitely not the cops. <laughs> I, I, I'm completely unaware of a, any of this. I have never visited any websites. And Kari is holding me as a hostage here to make me actually finish the recording of this episode. What? I just made it up here. I don't know what a pipe bomb is. Yeah, neither do I. Good. And most definitely haven't ever made one myself. Most definitely not in my backyard. Most definitely, yep. But uh, it's completely logical from pipe bombs to jump into a love scene. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. He travels through time. War hero friend's mother is now having it here and... uh, we covered that pretty extensively, but uh, well, hey, well, at at least the the love between Reese and and Sarah is, is a tale as old as time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now the dog starts barking once again, and Terminator is approaching the hotel, and the extremely the, the funniest music in this film starts. <laughs> Followed by the chase. Followed by the chase where you actually see exactly how useless the pipe bombs are. Well, I, I suppose they are as useless as you see in the film. Like, it, they can be extremely useful or useless depending on how well well you made it. Uh, don't ask me how I know this. I, of course, I'm just making it up as I go. Oh, 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 of course. <laughs> I, I, I never made a website. Yeah. Let me just be completely clear with that, you know. But 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 yeah, the the pipe bombs scene here, the, all they actually made it to cause is is a puff of smoke. But most importantly, yeah, they they are as as useless as in in the game Future Shock. Which yeah, I guess it. De- <laughs> I guess it depends what you pack inside that pipe bomb. But you can imagine, you can imagine that it's going to escape from either that end or the other end of that pipe. And it's going to explode in very specific directions. And it depends very much what you're going to pack inside it. How it's going to explode. And how much damage it's going to cause. Talking talking now, of course, completely hypothetically. Hypothetically, hypothetically I must address. <laughs> yes, I, I, I could believe that that is the case. <laughs> but most importantly, there's Spartan Burgers before they get into this highway shootout. Wouldn't you want to taste Spartan burgers? <laughs> so it happens that Kyle Reese get in, gets injured, so the minigun or whatever he's using is more lethal than any of this pipe bomb. Thing is, Kyle Reese is pulled back into the car after the injury, and heroically, Sarah Connor now uses her brain, and uh, I'm sorry, it's not that she hasn't used it before, but she indeed uses it and crosses the Terminator in between the road but loses control of the car and it's flyby time. After this, well, Terminator gets once again crushed by a little bigger object, gets crushed by the truck. This and the follow-up T2 definitely have something for trucks. There's plenty of trucks in these films. And it's kind of reversed situation, actually. Here it's the T-800 who is meeting the truck driver, and in the T2 he even asks a question are you all right? And gets stabbed by T-1000. So. It's it's almost like 
the Terminator 2 is full of callbacks to the original. Yep. So they have to leave the car and the car is crushed by the Terminator. He thought the best course of action is to crush the car further and not crush the actual heroes of the film. That's how the magic script goes. <laughs> then they get to the intersection and Carrie stays behind and Sarah Connor keeps running with her in real life broken ankle. I don't know how that's possible, but that's apparently what happened. In her own words, she had not not sprained ankle, it was actually a broken ankle with uh, severed ligaments. So, And they had to schedule the shooting so that every day at the last moment of the shooting, she would come out and do her scenes to put the minimum amount of pressure on her legs. It's only just a little problem here that she keeps running throughout the film. <laughs> Kyle Reese plants the bomb into the back end of this truck. James Cameron wanted to shoot and blow up a real real truck, but they couldn't do that because they were filming in front of a police armory, so they needed to build a set at Fantasy 2 in Burbank and blow up a miniature tank instead. And the tank environment had to, of course, match with things that were shot 10 days before, in principle. So there were a total of 42 explosions done for the tanker truck, beginning from back to the front. And the first attempt really failed. Somehow there was tension in the wiring for the model, and it was so tight that the front wheels of the truck took off and, and the front part collapsed. But they were already, like, blowing it up so they had to make the model once again and it took a few days and then they did it and it was fine. But it's a glorious explosion, Henrik. One of my favorites I've seen in film. It's great. It is a really good explosion. Yeah. And I was pretty convinced that this is a, like a real truck. Couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, me either. Well, Schwarzenegger has been grilled so he's not coming back but his endoskeleton will be coming back. With the power of stop motion and Stan Winston props. And I still do maintain that it looks pretty damn good, that stop motion here. I do maintain that it looks kind of clunky. It depends, I guess, for from which to which individual shot you're referring to. When he's back projected, I believe, when they are about to close the door inside the warehouse, that's where it looks kind of clunky, but that... There are moments where it looks better, but I still maintain that it looks clunky. Uh, yeah, but of course the thing to count in here is is that, once again, Stan Winston did make a physical replicas of some parts of, of the Terminator's endoskeleton. Absolutely, Henrik. There is this one that is now rising from the flames, which I believe is uh, all the way through the full-size endoskeleton. There you definitely see it from from the beginning to the end. Then you have the upper torso part. Then you have a separate legs. Then you have separate arm or arms that are used in the press. What else? Was there something else? I, I guess that covers the physicals that they did made. Yeah. But o- o- of course, they are used in combination with the stop motion shots, which make which makes, yeah. uh, of course, makes it a bit harder to call out individual scenes or individual frames from the stop motion work because they they constantly kind of a switch which they are using. Are they using the stop motion or are they using the physical replicas? Yeah. But uh, overall, the, the stop motion didn't bother me 
Like I, I can, I can, I too, I, I can point out some some scenes where the top motion is is clunky, more clunkier than in others. I, I would say the biggest offense here w- in that regard would be the moment when they have escaped inside the the factory, and there is that hallway shot where you see see the entire endoskeleton of Terminator walking slowly. You mean when they're closing the door, right? Yeah, the, yeah. Was, just just yeah. because they are just before they are closing the door, like that that hallway shot of walking Terminator. I, I would say that that is from the maybe maybe from the cl- clunkiest end of stop motion <clears throat> in in this film. Yeah, I was kind of wondering how this stop motion would look if you would kind of update it a little bit because nowadays, of course, we have the very simple technology. In fact, where uh, a software can analyze all the individual frames. Let's say that it's the stop motion frames. And judging from one frame to the second frame, it can, from that entire scene, read what should be in between that first and second frame to kind of artificially add more frames into it. And it should look seamless. I wonder if they could pull that off and what it would look like. Just food for the thought. Yeah, I, I am really hesitant in in using that technology for two reasons. The first one is that I actually do love stop motion quite a lot, even though at times it is clunky and it is quite quite obvious. But I I do love love stop motion. I I love the physical element of it and the realness that still exists in stop motion. But the second problem I have with, with the technology you described is that, in in my experience, and, and of course, of course, the most definitely the, there are cases to be found where this problem does not come up and where where it really is seamless. But I I have faced these situations where where the where I have seen that. The algorithm has been used, and it has tried to kind of guess guess the missing frames, and it has looked quite bad, in in my opinion. Mm, good be, good be. I have added individual frames when the, my VHS collection was restored, and there were some images, some frames that were so full of dust or scratches or noise that then we would take image from three different VHS tapes where we would have the same material and then com- combine those two and the computer would calculate like the average best image out of all of those three and then give the output. So in, in that sense, it was cre- artificially creating frames there based on the information that it was fed. So, and that looked fine. Hard to say. Depends on the instance, what we're doing and... I guess, I guess, but I I have a set number of experiences, so a set number of of instances of experiencing the disconnect between the actual film and and then the che- uh, computer generated frames. So I'm a bit hesitant. Whatever the result, I would probably not even want a version officially released where we would have something like that done to the original Terminator. I'm just interested interested purely in my technical bubble how it would look like i think films should be left alone how they were made if it wasn't in, really a fault in most cases yes because well 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 the whole should should film be left alone that 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 ties into the into the whole director's cut 
and the final cut. Like, I, I've seen good director's cuts. I've seen films that have been saved by the director's cut. Heaven's mm. Gate is one, and well, from Ridley Scott, the, the Kingdom of Heaven, the, the studio, uh, the theatrical version was a complete bastardization, and the film was was saved by the director's cut. So, I guess Blade, Blade Runner, one of those later versions was, was it the, not the director's cut, but whatever the fucking cut it was, there was so many. Yeah, yeah, once again, so kind of final cut. Yeah. So there are instances where it has worked and done marvels. In the meanwhile, while we have been talking, my Terminator has stopped rolling on the screen already. So, but the story is that Stan Winston basically kills Kyle Reese. And then who who tries to hit a metal terminator with a steel pipe? <laughs> yeah, last ditch effort, and Sarah Connor terminates the fucker with the hydraulic press, as we famously know. Then we get to the desert, and what did he just say? He says that he wants to sell you your picture that you didn't ask for. Okay, here's five dollars. <laughs> and then what did he just say? There's a storm coming. I know, and uh, drives into the storm. Very poetic, and uh, roll credits. Yeah, drives into the end credits. <laughs> That's the Terminator, Henrique. That That is the Terminator. Favorite performance? I'm kind of a tied between Linda Hamilton and Michael Bean. Oh. Yeah. Linda Hamilton has most range in, in her acting work, but I, I did like Bean's subtle nuances. For me, this was kind of a battle between Linda Hamilton and Arnold. And I'm still, not quite, sh- <laughs> I'm still not quite sure about that. But uh, this is an iconic character that Schwarzenegger has made. But basically, it's just himself doing things. So I'm going to go with Linda Hamilton. Yeah. not 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 taking anything... Away from Schwarzenegger either, because unlike the common illusion appears to be, it is actually really hard to play a Terminator and these robotic characters. People constantly make the notion that it must be super easy when you don't have to show emotions and you just have to do stuff, but actually that that does take quite a lot of effort and skill to pull it off. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I paid attention that in this film, the Terminator seems to have more facial expressions than in T2. So I think uh, Schwarzenegger is still kind of kind of working on the character. For example, when he falls on the windshield, when they escape from the club, he gives this kind of a surprised face. And also when he's shooting with his, with his shotgun, is it at the parking lot? So, uh, yeah, he, he does give us kind of a pissed emotion. Yeah. What's your favorite scene? It would be the police station shootout. It would be, for me, actually, this is kind of weird, but uh, when they're sleeping under the whatever structure and we see the flash forward. I don't know why, but uh, yeah, that, that flash forward part is really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. The, all, all, all the future stuff was really affecting. Favorite quote. There, there was that one line, the, the really famous famous quote, which has kind of carried the entire franchise. Like what I, I can't remember what it is. 
Oh, 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 uh, wait a minute. Yeah, it's that, uh, look at it this way. No one's gonna care in a hundred years. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, it was that. I'm not gonna pick it because it's too obvious. So instead I'm going with, with Silverman at, at the police station. This is great stuff. I could make a career out of this guy. And he's watching a really ro- low-res videotape about some ramblings of a crazy person. Proving yeah. to everyone that Silverman is a film podcaster in his heart. Criminal psychologist. <laughs> I picked uh, this one. Uh, you're talking about things I haven't done yet. In the past then it's driving me crazy. Because I'm not gonna pick those cliche ones because everybody knows them. <laughs> because everybody knows them. Yeah. Favorite kill. It, it, it would be the entire police station. And if, if I would be, you know, forced to pick just one cop. It would be that hallway running cop that gets shot in the back by the Terminator. (laughs) Uh, I think that was a hilarious moment. Or maybe I'm just uh, having flashbacks of the T2 guy, the the Pepsi guy who gets shot in the corridor. He's jumping in a humorous way. Boing, boing. So, favorite kill for me would be, I guess, the gun shop owner. You can't do that wrong. <laughs> dude, dude got the chance to only give one wrong answer. Yeah. It, it, it was an immediate punishment. <laughs> would you time travel with me to 1984, Henrik? <laughs> like, is there, is there something that you miss from the 80s, as far as you can remember anything of the 80s? No, not really. Maybe my birth and the chance to abort myself right then and there. <laughs> oh dear! I, I I would have been would be in the hospital, you know, take, taking myself from my mo- mom's womb and immediately take the baby and throw it in the nuclear garbage. Like over with this. Then I would travel into the past and rescue you, so you could do this <laughs> podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh, for me, I think. I can only think that life was simpler. I was reading Donald Duck without actually understanding what I was reading, and I could play outside. Everything was more simple, yeah. It, it was, and everything was more kind of a safe and secure back in those days. Because you didn't understand the frailty of human life and and all, all, all the complicated things that comes into, you know, being an adult. Yeah, no bills to pay. Yeah, no, no bills, uh, no bills. First image that comes to mind would be that that goddamn what, what what is the tank Terminator? Uh, HK. HK. Uh, Weren't yeah. HKs the flying ones? Weren't they kind of all of those mm, non-human-like Sentinels? I don't know. I, I don't remember. It's but but anyways, from the very opening of this film, the moment when when the tank Terminator rolls over the pile of human skulls hmm. uh, for me it's always the tech noir club in general when i think about the terminator yeah tech noir tech noir it, it has that has those dank 80s dance moves you got me burning uh which image best exemplifies this film i i i think it's it's from the sarah connor's dream sequence when when she has a dream of the of the hideout attack and there is that one shot 
in that dark hallway when the Terminator is, is gunning down the humans and you don't see anything except the flashes from his gun and those two red eyes staring directly at you. Good that you brought in the eyes here because those eyes look like something that the guy is wearing, like some kind of a night vision goggles. Because they seem to be extruding out of his head. It's not like they are the eyes. Anyway. I, I don't know. It, 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 it managed to sell me the illusion. All right. For me, maybe it's uh, kind of Arnold on the bike, perhaps. I kind of struggle to think of one, but uh, you have your biking, of course, in T2 as well. What took you out? Nothing. Nothing. I, I, I didn't have that moment. that I, I fell out of the film. Not really, no. But, well, if anything, then the Arnold prop heads are not up to par and they their use was often not necessary, if necessary at all, really. So, that's all. Yeah, I, I was thinking about about going with the with the prop heads. But, I, I don't know, I, I still, honest to God, I still stayed with the film for, for sure. some reason. I, I guess it, it was the cinematography, sa- saving the prop heads on those moments. And having those those really creepy close-ups. Yeah, I was wondering if they could have used like a lower lighting when the Terminator was in front of the mirror repairing his eye, but uh, I think that would have not even masqueraded the, the props anyway, because we have the nightly scene in the truck and they use the props and it's clearly a prop, so it wouldn't work, so never mind about that. Yeah, I, I too would believe that nothing on God's green earth could save the prop heads. Yeah. Uh, what pulled you in? The apocalyptic opening of, of this film. The film started and I was with the film from the get-go. Yeah, for, for me it's the, the hilarious chase music before the tanker explosion. Okay. The most, the most sacrilegious moment. Scissors of sacrilege. What would you change in the film? I'm... Kind of hesitant. I, I, like the obvious answer for me would be the Reese Connor relationship and add more material into that one. But at the same time, this is extremely skimmed film, no fat in this one. So I'm kind of afraid that would, would the relationship be built up more if that would kind of, a, kind of a swollen the experience. Basically, basing on that, I would actually leave the scissors at home. Mm, I would try to play with the makeup once again and try to put the fake heads into a minimum usage. But other than that, like you said, a tight film. A lot of deleted scenes, actually, for this film. All of which were kind of stupid and better left to rot. And it's kind of a short film. One hour, 47 minutes. So, well done. I guess I could have tried to put some more emphasis on the love story than if you're going to drive it so aggressively that it was kind of the love of love for an entire lifetime in one one day or two days so explain that to me please yeah there, there is like like the love story as it is it does raise some questions on Reese Park like is is Reese's love towards Sarah is it really real or is it just something that John has put into Reese's head through through the years and through giving Reese the picture and and telling him things about his mom. 
I'm like, oh, like that. That's you can. That's something that I kind of saw at play when I look looked at the relationship from Reese's end. And when, when it comes to Connor's side, I really don't get what the hell hell Connor is actually seeing Reese. Yeah, especially because we're still we we should still consider that basically Sarah Connor is asking from him. So you're really a virgin? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, and that moment. Yeah, I I actually didn't notice that. Good call. <laughs> you really know you're watching the Terminator when when you get the shivers down your spine the next time you write hello world. <laughs> Oof. You really know you're watching the Terminator when you know that you can do something extremely epic with the tight budget. Maybe ne- at some point we should actually, you know, for for this question we should try to pick an actual moment from the film itself and not just be goofing around. <laughs> well, whatever. Three adjectives to describe the Terminator. Mine are dark, violent and groundbreaking. Because this movie most definitely is uh, definitely dark, iconic, and horror-esque. Did you look at your watch? No, not once. Same here. Well, I'm pestered by some nonsense messages by my phone lately, but other than that... It, it, it is becoming sentient, but I get rid of it. Oh yeah. You open your WhatsApp and, and all the messages are from unknown number and they are, hey Curry, have you ever thought about joining your cell phone with your computer and the internet connection? And have you ever thought about st- taking the SIM card and sticking it to your brain? <laughs> Yo, uh, there's a John Carpenter TV movie from the 1978 called Someone's Watching Me. This kind of a film would never work nowadays because we have, you know, internet, we have our fancy cell phones, so it could go like this. Bring, bring, I want to see your titties. Who is this? <laughs> I will come to your home right now. Okay, I have already tracked you down based on your GPS location and the cops will be in your flat in five minutes. That would be kind of boring. Well, you can only know after you've tried. Hmm. <laughs> There's an idea for a horror comedy for somebody. There, there is an idea for the next weekend. In this podcast, which you can find... Okay. Henrik, would you recommend this film? I most definitely would. Even though that recommendation comes with a caveat. Because the odds are that... that or Everybody, simply everybody has seen Terminator 2 and the odds are... There is still a chance that you haven't seen this one. And in, in case this is the case for you, you uh, you do well to actually remember that the first one and, and the Judgment Day, they are in every way two completely different movies. Because if, if you come to this one, if you, if you come to the original Terminator, expecting to get some something like or m- expecting to get more Judgment Day... Oh boy, you are in for quite a rough ride. That's kind of what I like about these films, that each individual film is different from these two, but I'm not even commenting on the subsequent sequels. But uh, they, what, they, yeah. I, I would say even the sequels are, are different from each other, 
sometimes for better or or for worst and and that them being different not automatically kind of a justifying everything that happens in those films or even making them good movies but I, I i would say that in in terminator every sequel manages somehow to be different from the previous ones yeah i would i would recommend this film and i suppose you too as well most definitely yeah but like you said it's a different film i feel this like this is coming as a surprise to absolutely no one but i'm going to say that this is kind of rougher around the edges version of james cameron's terminator hell of a lot this this is this is darker this is more violent this is even when it comes to subject matters and 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 even the stuff you see in the sequel like, like, for example, this against the authority mentality of the heroes, where, where, where the heroes, in, in both films, the heroes have to kind of uh, go around the system and even go against the system in order to save, the hum- save humanity. Even that aspect of the film is handled way differently in here when you compare it, uh, compare it to T2. Yeah. In here... The cops are actually the good guys. They are not just an obstacle that the heroes have to get past. And the cops actually get murdered hor- horribly in a shooting scene. It's not like in Judgment Day where Schwarzenegger just shoots at a bunch of cops and comments that nobody died. And like in every level, this is completely different film. Yeah, both are very interesting in their own ways. Like this... this kind of introduces you many of the concepts that you already know by Terminator 2, but somehow, like, Terminator 2 manages to still bring enough new story elements that it manages to stand on its own and not become boring or repetition or whatever, like the old of the rest of the sequels then are. Like, Terminator 3 is basically just a repetition of Terminator 2. Just switch the baddie into a lady, a lady robot or lady cyborg and you know, there's not too much going there. Yeah. This is James Cameron on his A-game. Like, if you've seen, for example, the shit fest that was Avatar, and you are wondering why on earth are people actually yapping about James Cameron, and why he's being, still being kept in such of a high regard, it is films like, like The Terminator, and Judgment Day, and Aliens, and abyss and true lies that actually explain that to you yeah i can only say that while i while this has been a really big film for me like in teenage years and onwards it's a terminator 2 that made me like a terminator fan and it's those two and like i've endlessly stated and nothing more but which one of these is actually your favorite i'm probably not going to be surprised by the answer but still to me, it is Terminator 2. Like, if, if I would have to pick between yeah. the two of them. Of course, something that factors in is that I saw, did saw Terminator 2 first. The first time I saw this one, I, I was kind of baffled. Like, why is this nothing like Terminator 2? What is this yeah. film? What did I just saw? And it, it was only after I had seen it again and I... Finally, managed to pull my head out of my ass and realize that I, I have to have to meet this film as an individual movie 
and and not just something that should give me more judgment day that I actually realized how good this film is and managed to like it. Yeah, that's one of the things that popped into my mind that I thought that it was actually better than I remembered it to be. And I was kind of surprised how well everything goes together. Like you said, fully working unit in every scene. Whew, would that be it for this week? I, I, I guess that would be our week this week. All right, yeah, you know where to find us, all over the internet. I don't think I have to remind you, but if you insist, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. That's all from my part. I'm ready to get the hell out of the lab once I get my lab coat away from this door. It's stuck there. Could you help me a little bit? I could, but I won't. Oh. I'm going to leave you here and I'm going to actually take... Hey, is this your laptop? And at this moment... (laughs) <laughs> I will send the laboratory test terminator to get you. Would be handy to have one of those, you know, Stan Winston endoskeletons in the lab. So we can yeah, experiment you, you would, on it. Yeah, you wouldn't have to use your own hand next, next time you masturbate. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> until next week. See ya. See ya. And Kari is holding me, 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 holding me as a hostage here.